0: All right, good afternoon, everybody. Um, So uh, looking at the title here on Monday, I sat in on a data analytics talk, and the presenter was very self-conscious that he had the longest longest title, and uh, he said that he ran a Python script to find out who actually had the longest title in the whole conference, and I was very worried he was going to put us up as the winner. He he didn't do that, which is very nice, and I don't know if we're the winner or not, but anyway, that's the subject of our talk. We're going to talk about using the EC2 Systems Manager service to implement resilience tests in your CI-CD pipeline. That's continuous integration, continuous delivery pipeline. And uh, I'm Willie Wheeler. This is Dave Bakshani, and we're both from Expedia. So before we get into the uh, core of the presentation, I want to just start off with a uh, back-of-the-envelope calculation to kick us off. So in uh, 2016, Expedia was, it turns out, the uh, 11th largest uh, Internet company by revenue. Um, That that was actually news to me. I didn't realize that uh, that was the case. But uh, we did uh, $8.77 billion of revenue in, in 2016. And so, if you uh, take a look at that figure and then apply the kind of standard two nines, three nines, four nines to see what's the potential revenue loss there, this is what we come up with. So, for uh, two nines uptime, that translates to about three and a half, four days of downtime. And uh, that's, uh, again, this is just back of the envelope, but that's a pretty massive figure there, uh, almost $90 million of potential revenue loss. Uh, the three nines is uh, that's where we have we brought it down to about nine hours of downtime per year, and you can see that that one percent, not even one percent difference, uh, that that's pretty huge. That brings it to uh, nine million dollars, and then four nines. That's where you're you know really getting good now. You know under a million dollars there, and so again between two nines and three nines, we're talking a, many tens of millions of dollars. And so what that tells us is that keeping our site up is really a big deal. It's something we care about. It's not a, uh, it's not a trivial amount of money. So for uh, the talk today, we're going to cover the topics you see here. Uh, I'm going to start us off with uh, a couple of overviews. The first overview is just a general overview on resilience engineering. Sometimes it's called chaos engineering. Uh, but just a general overview of Resilience Engineering just because uh, a lot of people uh, may not be familiar with that practice. The second overview will be uh, Amazon EC2 Systems Manager which is the tool we're going to use to uh, pursue our Resilience Engineering demos here. After the overviews I'll turn it over to Dave who will uh, show us two demos. The first one will be using EC2 Systems Manager to attack services right so the service that we want to test for resilience he'll use it to show how to uh, implement an attack and then after that Dave will show how to take the attacks that we demonstrate there and embed those in the context of a CI CD pipeline so that you can get those on an ongoing basis and uh, prevent regressions that sort of thing and then um, after that I'll uh, get back into it, and I'll show how to implement other attacks. Dave's going to show one attack. I'll show how to implement other attacks using uh, SSM, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Okay, so first we'll do the uh, resilience engineering overview. Okay, so uh, the goals of this, actually there's, there's one goal, and it's pretty straightforward, and that goal is to keep the site up, right? So Expedia has... Uh, actually multiple sites, and, you know, there, there can be a lot of uh, kind of back and forth about the details, like, hey, do we need to keep it up in this situation, not that situation? A lot of that's noise, right? The idea is that we know things are going to break in the background. You know, we may lose instances. We may have latencies, whatever it is. Those things happen, and when you're operating at sufficient scale, they're going to happen on a regular basis, and we can't let somebody's broken instance take down the site. Right? So the idea here is we want to keep the site up even when things are going wrong, and uh, you know that, that's how we protect our revenue, right? While the site's up, we're doing business, while the site's down, we're not selling anything. And the, uh, there, there are a number of different challenges that arise when you're trying to keep the site up. So this is uh, very much a partial list. Um, but I I think that anybody who's uh, in development or operations or actually just in tech generally will be familiar with a lot of these. So, for example, uh, traffic, right? If you get more traffic than you were expecting to get or that you have capacity to handle, that can certainly cause problems for you. Uh, There are various resource-related challenges you can run into, so CPU, uh, network, storage, memory, These are all resources that are finite resources, and so when you run out of those things, you can reliably expect that problems will occur unless you uh, account for those. You can lose power, right? That happens. Uh, A couple that are not listed here but that also happen, um, security-related incidents can happen, right? So if you have a DDoS attack, that can certainly take down your site. Uh, SQL injection that comes in and wipes out some of your data, that can effectively end up being a site outage if uh, your site relies upon that data, which it probably does. Uh, Another kind of uh, challenge that comes up, especially in organizations that are doing the kind of um, continuous delivery sort of model for releases, uh, sometimes people push out bad code that breaks, right? I mean, the, the idea is to try not to do that, but it happens. Um, So for example, right, maybe some new JavaScript goes out and it turns out that a certain combination of browser and operating system is not compatible with that JavaScript and so for some number of people, the site doesn't work, right? Those are all things that can end up resulting in lost sales, lost bookings, and we want to protect ourselves against those kind of things. And so this idea of protecting ourselves There are multiple uh, strategies available for that I'm not going to cover all of those um, but I I will cover uh, some of them Uh, the first general category is in the area of capacity right so the idea with capacity related strategies is that we have a certain amount of demand you know requests coming in from users from customers and we have a certain amount of capacity available to service those requests and as long as we have enough capacity no problem but if the demand exceeds that capacity, then yes, there will be problems. And so, the traditional approach to this, uh, to solving this issue, is really over-provisioning, right? So you may have heard before people talk about, hey, do we have enough headroom to deal with, you know, this amount of traffic? Um, the idea is that the traffic comes in like this, right? You have you have patterns, daily cycles, weekly cycles, monthly, you know, yearly even. Certain times of the year may be, you know, busy season. And so if you, one approach to solving the capacity issue is to just make sure you always have enough for the high water mark, right? So if it's Christmas and you sell Christmas stuff, then have enough uh, capacity for that. Uh, the challenge with that obviously is that during the times where you're at low demand, you have a lot of unused capacity and that's expensive. and so a, a more recent approach, and, and I imagine this is familiar to everybody uh, you know, at AWS reInvent, is auto-scaling, right? So the idea being a more just-in-time model for provisioning capacity, right? So while you have low demand, then you provision smaller amounts of capacity. And as the demand starts to increase, you pay attention to that, and then you just deploy more capacity so that you uh, don't run into problems. Benefit there is you have the capacity on hand, the, uh, and also you do that in a more cost-effective way than over-provisioning. The uh, third approach is uh, this idea called load-shedding, and the idea here is that sometimes, for whatever reason, uh, creating more capacity may not be an option. Right? You may not have the capacity on hand. Uh, the other kind of case is you may have a certain user or a certain type of user, for example, like bot traffic, where you want to let some of that in, but you don't want to let you know, too much of it in. So you can do something called load shedding, which is, you know, to if you get too much of the traffic, then drop some of it on the floor, and at least you don't lose the site over, it, right? Some users or some clients won't get their request service, but the site stays up. So that, that was uh, capacity-related strategies. Another uh, general category is uh, the idea of fault tolerance, and here... This is in recognition of something I mentioned earlier, which is that things are gonna break on the site, on the back end, all that, that things are gonna break. And so do we have the ability to withstand those issues when they occur? And uh, before I talk about these, uh, these specific items that you see here, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about this concept of a circuit breaker. So this, this is uh, like a circuit breaker that's in your house. The idea is that you have a service, we'll call A, that's going to call service B. And normally, service A just directly invokes service B, makes requests. But if service B breaks in some way, then that can end up with service A breaking, right? And especially if service B gets slow, then that can really cause problems for service A. Uh, Latency tends to be a more problematic issue than just B being unavailable. And so the idea is to solve that, to take a circuit breaker, something called a circuit breaker, and just stick that in between service A and service B. And the circuit breaker, it has three states. It has a closed state, which is the normal operating state where traffic flows across the breaker from service A to service B. You have an open state, which is when the breaker detects that there's something wrong with service B, whether it's slow or broken, whatever it is, but something's wrong, so the breaker trips into the open state. which means that traffic can no longer flow across that path. And then you have a third state, which is called half-open. The idea is that when service B recovers, the breaker, you know, we want to know about that so that we can restore service, essentially, back to A. And so what the breaker will do is it will watch the traffic, and it will occasionally let a little bit of traffic across the breaker. And if that succeeds, then great. We go back into the closed state. And if it fails, then we stay open until it closes. So the idea with circuit breakers is that we can uh, protect the communication there and protect A in particular from B. There are three basic approaches to um, using circuit breakers. The first one is this idea of a fallback. And that, what that is is if the downstream service is unavailable. Have something else you can do instead, and that could be a failover instance of Service B, right? So maybe you have, you know, your your core instance is in US West two, but if you know if, if things go bad, then you can at least temporarily fail over to US East one. Let's say you have a separate instance there. It doesn't have to be failover; it could be falling back to a, a cache. Like let's say you were getting live data, but that's unavailable. Okay, fall back to a cache, um, or you can go the other way too. Um, Another, uh, you can do hard-coded values, uh, static values, anything like that. The second one is uh, failing silently, which is where you may have, you know, you have a problem. It's okay if the circuit breaker just says, you know what, I can't reach the back end. I'm just going to return an empty response, and then it's up to the client to deal with that. Um, So an example at Expedia. At Expedia, we have an itinerary service, and as part of that itinerary, we display geographic information on the screen. That's, that's nice to have, but we don't want a problem with the ge- ge- geography service to cause the itinerary service to go down. So if geography is having an issue, it's fine if itinerary just shows nothing uh, at the time. Not that geography would ever be down. And then the uh, third one is uh, failing fast, which is if you can't do a fallback and if you can't fail silent, at least just fail very quickly so that you're not consuming a bunch of resources. And that can at least prevent problems from cascading up the stack. So uh, let me talk a little bit about the anatomy of an experiment and, and what you would want to do an experiment on. So the idea is that we have these problems. We have some kind of intervention that we want to put in place, like, uh, you know, circuit breakers, rate limiters, whatever it is. And um, so what we want to do, though, is when we put those in place, we want to verify that they actually work, right? Because in distributed systems, it's very easy to think that something works, and it turns out it doesn't work the way you thought. That happens all the time. And so what we do is we set up experiments, and they really have these three steps. The first one is... Understand what it is that you expect to happen when a problem arises, right? So for example, if I slam my service with traffic, I expect the service to do what, right? Maybe I expect it to drop a certain amount of that traffic on the floor. Then the second stage is to actually attack the system to see you know, what happens, and then finally watch what happens and you know, if it behaves as expected, great, the experiment passed. If it doesn't behave as expected, great, because now you discovered that in an environment where you can do something about it before it actually happens in production. And so uh, there are multiple environments in which you can run these experiments. So I only have two up here. One that I didn't list here is uh, just even in development, right? So when you're doing development on your laptop, you can do interactive sorts of experiment. Um, there's a tool, uh, the uh, Gremlin, uh, the vendor, they have a tool here that you can use for that, it has a very nice UI. Uh, the other um, sort of thing you can do is in the test environment, which will be the core of the demo that you see in a bit, CI CD pipeline. You can run these controlled tests. And then uh, finally, in production, um, probably by now, a lot of people have heard of uh, Netflix Chaos Monkey. The idea behind this is that it's essentially a bot, and and it's not just Chaos Monkey, it's Simeon Army, it's a whole set of bots. They're bots that wake up, and then they randomly attack different victims, and then they go away, and then hopefully the site doesn't fall over. So that's a sort of production experiment. We're not going to go too much into the production-based experiments in this talk, but understand that that is really the holy grail where we're trying to get to, and that's why we would want to do The tests in the test pipeline first so that when we turn it on in production we have some confidence that the site will withstand that and and not just fall over so just to recap on that resilience engineering overview the goal is to keep the site up there are a number of strategies available uh, the ones that I mentioned and and others besides and then we want to run experiments both in test and production And so, quick water break. Okay, so now we're going to do an overview of uh, Amazon EC2 Systems Manager. So, uh, Systems Manager, this is uh, essentially a systems administration service that Amazon provides. And it allows you to manage EC2 instances and also uh, on-prem instances as well. And you can see a list of various capabilities that Systems Manager provides. So, you know, automation, inventory, maintenance, window, patch management, a bunch of different things that the systems administrators among you will be very familiar with. Uh, the run command one at the very end, uh, this one we'll talk about in a little more detail. This allows us to run scripts on the different servers. So we'll, we'll look at that in a bit. <clears throat> so the architectural overview of systems managers which you see up on the screen so there's a service that runs in Amazon itself and then the various instances that you want to manage they're all running agents they're running uh, systems manager agents and again those can be EC2 those can be on-premise instances and um, the the uh, EC2 instances, the, uh, a lot of those come pre-baked with the, uh, the agent already, um, but if not, then you install that. Oh, actually, let me go back uh, mention one other thing. So the, uh, the idea is that the agent is in constant communication with the systems manager service, and so that when you execute commands on the systems manager service, the agent picks that up, and then it runs the command on the instance. So that, that was an important detail. So uh, set, doing the setup, uh, there are three steps. The first one is to create an IAM role that has the uh, Amazon EC2 role for SSM policy attached to it. Uh, that's what allows the instance to actually talk back and forth. To, uh, to uh, it says SSM here. That's the original name for EC2 Systems Manager. Uh, step two is to actually attach that role to your instance. And then step three is to uh, do that agent installation that I talked about. So it's either already there if you're on a recent Amazon AMI, uh, Linux AMI at least, and for other ones, you you may have to install it yourself. So the uh, two capabilities that we care about for the purpose of this presentation are uh, system manager documents and then run command, and I'll talk about both of those. Systems Manager documents look like this. Okay, it looks like you can see that at least if you're not too far back. The idea is it's essentially a script, right, with parameters. And so in this case, what we're looking at is an example that allows you to either uninstall or install a package. And so you can see there's a few parameters here. One is, uh, you can see at the bottom, there's an action parameter, there's a name parameter, there's a version parameter. So for example, if I want to install Emacs version, whatever the latest and greatest of Emacs is, then I can run this uh, document with those parameters and it would install uh, Emacs greatest. And so that was a document. This is the run command. This is how we actually execute the document. And the, the flow has four steps. The first one is that we choose the document that we want to run. The second one is we choose the instances against... we. Against which we want to run the document, the uh, third step is we parameterize that right we specify parameters, so you know install emacs, uninstall something else, and then uh, execute the uh, run command okay so um obviously there's quite a bit more to e c two systems manager, but for for us um, you know the the run command and the document are what we care about, so uh, we have done that now, so I am going to turn it over to Mr. Bakshani for the good stuff. All
1: right, thank you, Willie. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, so now we will talk about how we can attack your app with the Amazon EC2 Systems Manager. So one question that you may ask is, why the EC2 Systems Manager? Well, for the types of attacks that we're doing, we're essentially running remote commands on EC2 instances. And as it turns out, that's something that Systems Manager does really well, so it ended up being a great fit for our needs. Now, in order to run an attack on a system, uh, this is what we need. We need to create a command document, uh, basically the instructions for the attack. How do you want to do the attack? And then we execute run command, and then finally the Systems Manager agent uh, will run those commands on the EC2 instance. This is an example of a systems manager attack document. Um, actually, it is, uh, it is the document that we will be using for uh, the, the demo coming up shortly. So this document has instructions for doing a black hole attack. And uh, it requires one parameter, which is a port. So the way the document works is when the attack uh, occurs, it will block <laughs> outgoing traffic on a particular port, basically the port that's specified. And um, if you look at the bottom, you'll see that it's it's accomplishing that by using the IP tables command. And uh, what it'll do is it'll drop traffic. It'll add a rule to drop traffic to a particular port. Uh, from here, you can see that the attacks can be actually quite simple. It doesn't have to be anything complicated. Now, for for I'm sorry. Uh, so for our demonstration, what we're going to do is uh, attack an application that we created, uh, called Weather Report. It's, uh, this is the architectural view of the application. It's uh, quite simple. We have an API layer, and that is the part that we will actually be testing. Um, the API connects to a database from which it retrieves a list of cities. For each city that it retrieves, it will uh, access the Open Weather Map API to get weather information about it, and then it finally displays all of that in the UI. Now, we have two versions of the application. One is a non-resilient version, and one is a resilient version. The non-resilient version uh, doesn't have any particular measures to protect itself against adverse conditions. Uh, whilst the resilient version has some uh, features, it basically uses circuit breakers that we had mentioned earlier. For our attack, what we will be doing is um, black hole attack, black hole attack against the database. So we will stop our application or our API from connecting to the database, and then we will observe what happens when we do that. All right. Uh, let's uh, dive into the demo here. All right. Thank you, Willie. Okay. So um, this is the UI for our application. Let me go ahead and refresh the screen so we can see that uh, it's running. Now, we have the non-resilient version, and it says so in the title. And uh, we have a resilient version next to it, which I'll also refresh to show that at this point, the two versions look quite similar. They're both, um, actually they should be almost identical. They both bring up eight cities uh, and the weather information for each of those cities. So what we will do next is um, look at the Amazon EC2 Systems Manager uh, uh, console, in, and, and we'll go ahead and launch an attack. So. The systems manager is located in the EC2 services section of the AWS console, so let's go there. Now, down in the lower left is where we find the systems manager um, links. Let's go ahead and look at documents. Now, uh, by default, your AWS account will come with several documents. They're documents to install and uninstall applications for inventory management, etc. cetera. Uh, we will use documents that we created. So let's go, let me go ahead and filter this list. All right. Now, we will be using two documents. Um, we will be using a black hole outbound start document and a stop document. The difference being the start document will start the attack or add the IP tables rule, and the stop document will remove the attack or remove the IP tables rule. It'll stop the attack and uh, remove the IP tables rule. So, looking at the start document, we see, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, one parameter is required, which is the port, right? And if we look at the content of the document, you'll see that it looks just like the uh, document we looked at a few slides ago. Now, let's go ahead and use this document. To do that, we use the systems manager run command. Now, as Willie mentioned, when you use run command, uh, you have several steps. The first step is to to select the document. So we'll go ahead and uh, filter the list and select our document. Now, the next thing you do is you specify which EC2 instance or instances you want to uh, run the command against. So you have the ability to specify Uh, instances by tags, you can select them from a list, you can do filtering by attributes, etc. Now, one thing to note is that the EC2 instances that appear on this list are only instances that are considered managed instances. And for an instance to be considered managed, it has to fulfill the criteria that Willie mentioned earlier, which is it needs to have the appropriate IAM role attached and it needs to have the systems manager agent installed on it. All right, so if you try this and your instance doesn't show up, check those two things to see if uh, one of them isn't present. All right, so now we have our instance selected. Let's go ahead and populate the parameter that's required. Now, our application connects to uh, MySQL, a MySQL database, and that connection happens on port 3306. So we'll go ahead and block um, that port. Now, finally, we hit the run command, which will go ahead and execute the document. All right, so at this point, our API should be unable to connect to the database. Let's go back to our UI and observe the effect of that attack. First, uh, let's refresh the non-resilient version. So you'll notice that it's spinning, it's waiting for the page uh, to return. And it'll do this for a little while, actually. If you were to look at the logs for the API, you'll see that at this point, it's trying to connect to the database. Now, let's go ahead and um, refresh our resilient version of the application and observe what happens. OK. So this version came back in a timely manner, um, but there's only one city. Uh, This was done intentionally. What happened here is, as Willie talked about earlier, the uh, circuit breaker tripped. So we have a circuit breaker in our application, in the resilient version of our application, that detects when it's unable to connect to the database. And if it's unable to do so, it'll switch to a static list of cities. Um, In our case, we hard coded one city so you can see the difference clearly, but basically the application responded in a way it's expected to. Now, going back to our non-resilient version, you see that it uh, threw an error. So comparing the two versions, you can clearly see that the non-resilient version provides a, um, you know, not a good user experience. Right? The user will be sitting there waiting for the page to load, and it'll finally error without any you know, uh, meaningful message. Now, in the case of our resilient version, we got one city. However, there's uh, nothing that, that prevents our backup list or backup data source from having the full set of data. Just in this case, we chose to have only one city in our backup list so we could clearly observe the difference. Uh, between when the circuit breaker is open and closed. Now, one thing I should note here is uh, something you should do in general when you're you're testing your resilience features, which is to minimize your blast radius. So uh, what I mean by that is one other way we could have achieved this uh, this attack would have been to shut down the database. The API wouldn't have been able to connect to the database then, however, if there are other applications that are using that database, they would have been impacted as well. So, what we did instead is we blocked traffic going from our API to the database, thereby achieving the same result but minimizing the impact of our tests. Right? So, that's something you should uh, keep in mind. OK, um, let's go ahead next and uh, stop the attack and observe what happens then. So we'll go back to run command, and this time we'll select the other document, the one to stop the attack. We have our instance already selected. I will go ahead once again and specify port 3306 and run the command. All right, so at this point, the IP tables rule that uh, we had running on our EC2 instance should, be, should have been removed. Let's go back to our, to our UI and observe um, if that's true or not. All right, so the non-resilient version is back now to um, being able to connect to the database and retrieve results. Let's look at what happens with our resilient version. So that also comes back with the full list of cities. So at this point, the circuit breaker has, uh, it realizes that, that it is able to connect to the database, so traffic is going back through the primary data route. Now, uh, while we're looking at this, let me go ahead and show you uh, briefly the code where the circuit breaker is implemented that makes our resilient version resilient. We have a city store class in which we've defined a city store database where we retrieve the results from the database and city store hard-coded where we retrieve the results from a static list. Now, the primary function for retrieving the cities is get all. And when get all is called, we, we um, the execute function or the execute method of the get cities command um, is, is triggered. Get cities command is defined right here and it extends the hystrix command. So we have a little bit of configuration over here that we'll skip. Um, and then we have the meat of, of the histrix circuit breaker. So when execute is called, the run callback gets called initially. And in this case, the run callback returns the list from the database store. Uh, however, in the event that that fails, Histrix will call the get fallback callback. And when that happens, we will log a message that indicates we were unable to retrieve the data from our primary source, and we'll go ahead and get and return the data from our hard-coded source. So this is... This is uh, uh, an example of what it takes to implement a, a circuit breaker or hystrix specifically in your application right. uh, Thank you really, I don't know how to push buttons All right, so to recap um, We've learned how to use the Amazon EC2 systems manager to execute an attack uh, We also uh, saw the impact of uh, the attack on our resilient and non-resilient applications, and we looked a little bit at uh, the histrix code for implementing the um, resilient feature. Now, being able to test your resilience capabilities is really important. As Willie really, really mentioned earlier, you don't want to find out that your res- resilience measures don't work uh, like you expect them to in a production scenario when you know, uh, the, the stakes are high. So what you want to be able to do is test these features um, in a pipeline now we're going to talk now and i'll show you how you can uh, basically have your resilience test running in a ci cd pipeline so you can perform ongoing verification this is of course scalable compared to doing it by hand like i just did because um, you can you have this run automatically with every new version with uh, multiple resilience tests etc now Uh, we have a pipeline here that's similar to the pipeline that we have for some applications at Expedia the um, pipeline is triggered by a build which occurs when code is committed to a repo when the build completes successfully it is deployed to the test environment and then released and then we're able to run tests on it Uh, performance tests resilience tests and uh, on the side we can also run code scans and if all of these come back successfully, we deploy the code to prod and we release it to uh, receive traffic. All right. Now let's look at uh, resilience testing in a CI/CD pipeline. What we will be covering is uh, three resilience tests. We will have one test that runs prior to the attack, so this allows us to verify that our application is working as it should before we attack it, then we Uh, We launched a black hole attack, which is the same attack that I just did manually a few minutes ago. And we will run the fallback test to verify that we get uh, uh, the fallback data. And finally, we will do a post-recovery test, which is once the attack's been stopped, has the application recovered and returned to normal behavior. Let's go ahead and do that. Thank goodness willie is here man i don't know which button to press all right so for this we have a, a jenkins pipeline that we have uh, created let me go ahead and trigger this pipeline then i'll talk about the steps in the pipeline now the pipeline requires a few parameters which we've pre-configured we have the uh, load balancer dns name so we are able to uh, reach our application to test it we have the instance id so we know which ec2 instance to attack and we have the port that we will be attacking, in this case, port 3306, which is our uh, MySQL port. All right, let's go ahead and kick this off. Now, whilst this thing is running, um, let me explain that the first two steps are actually simulated. We're not actually building and deploying our code right now. Uh, We're going to be running our tests against the uh, version of the application that's already deployed. All right, now, the next step in the pipeline is to verify uh, connectivity prior to attacking so when we look at this we see that we use grep. oh sorry we use curl to connect to the api of the application get the results and then ensure that we get eight cities uh in our results because that's what we expect prior to attacking the uh, application now after we've done that we go ahead and launch the black hole attack now we are using systems manager for this however Rather than doing it by hand like I did earlier, we use uh, the AWS CLI to trigger the attack. And we're using the same document as earlier. Uh, We're using the same port and the same instance. So it's the same attack, except it's done in a script-friendly way this time. Now, after that attack is triggered, we go ahead and we verify connectivity once again. And in, in this case, we are verifying that we receive one city only. And that's because when our circuit breaker trips, we expect to only receive one city. And um, if that succeeds, then we'll go ahead, stop the black hole attack, which again is using um, the AWS CLI, and then verify connectivity to ensure that we get eight cities once again. Now finally, we record the results. Now recording the results is important because what it lets you do is keep track of the attacks that you're running and the results of these attacks, the successes and failures, It lets you uh, identify applications that may be more in need of resilience help than uh, others. Maybe you have applications that fail in common scenarios, and maybe you wanna prioritize uh, adding resilience measures to those before others. So having a scorecard, basically having information is good, so you can make decisions based on that. So to recap, uh, we, we looked at how we can um, embed or include our resilience tests in the CI/CD pipeline uh, so that we have ongoing verifications of our resilience features. At this point, I'm going to hand it back to Willie to talk about uh, some other attacks that can be implemented.
0: Thank you, Dave. Okay, so uh, Dave showed you how to uh, execute a specific type of attack called a black hole, and you, you saw that that was implemented using IP tables. Uh, there's a lot of different attacks that you can implement, and so the uh, Netflix Simian Army uh, that I mentioned earlier, it comes with a whole bunch of different scripts that allow you to execute uh, the, a variety of attacks, and so you can see those here. Everything from CPU attacks, I.O., DNS, network, and then even some Amazon-specific attacks like DynamoDB. And so the the idea here is, you know, there's a link at the bottom. Go take a look at the Simeon Army project in GitHub, and you'll see all those scripts there. So you can use those at least as a starting point. And uh, I'm going to show you an example of three of those. And the, the thing I want you to take away is not the details of the attack, like the specific commands. That, that's not what we care about here. What we care about is just how uh, simple it actually is. There's not too much to it. And so let me show you. So the first one is a burning CPU, right? So if you want to attack your service and have it just max out, this is the sort of script you could run. This uses the open SSL speed command, uh, if I recall correctly this does a bunch of uh, hashes and uh, just runs these on all the cores and uh, just maxes out your CPU. It's pretty short. Here's one that's even shorter. This one is burn IO and it also runs in a tight loop. It uses DD to copy random junk into a file and just burn up your IO. Uh, this is the shortest one yet. This is uh, really just a special case of the black hole attack that Dave showed a little while ago. This one is uh, failing DNS. DNS runs on port fifty three so if you black hole port fifty three you uh, now have a DNS issue to deal with. Okay, so um, those you know th- th- those are the different types of attack uh, here. Uh, At this point, I want to just kind of bring it home. We learned how to use Systems Manager to attack your system and ultimately to keep your site up. And I would encourage everybody to use Systems Manager in that way to start testing and enhance your site resilience today. Uh, I want to give a couple of acknowledgments. Uh, One is to uh, Kaldeep Chauhan, he's one of our colleagues at Expedia. Um, This uh, concept was really his brainchild. He put together a blog post on it. And uh, he said, hey, could we use it? And it turns out we can. And so thank you, Kaldip. Then another one is a former colleague, uh, Jay Spang, who uh, wrote the proposal that uh, brought Dave and I here today. So uh, thank you, Jay. And uh, hopefully we did your talk justice. And at this point, we're very glad to take questions. I would ask that if you do have questions, please uh, step up to the mics that you see here so that everybody can hear. And thank you. Okay, Hi. go ahead. Yes, uh, you demonstrated on uh, AWS, but uh, if you have to do the same thing on-premise, um, do you have any ideas on what needs to be done? Uh, there's no AWS CLI, so how, how do you handle an on-premise uh, system? Okay, so, so I, can, I can take a shot at that, although um, let, me, let me caveat that, that we haven't actually used this for on-prem. My understanding is that the agent can still talk to SSM uh, running in cloud, so you still execute the commands against uh, EC2 systems manager in the cloud, and the agent will pick that up, but I haven't used it personally.
1: Okay, all right, thanks. Thank you. Yep. Hi. Please, go ahead. Um, You talked about limiting, I think it was blast damage or something like that to that so I, I was under the impression that these were all created for the testing. So I, I guess I don't understand what, what could be collateral damage. Okay, so in the case of the presentation that we just did, uh, we created the instances and the tests uh, specifically for this presentation. However, if you, if you run your attacks in your uh, test environment, you may be using shared databases for your applications, for instance. And so in that case, if you're trying to prevent your application from connecting to the database, you want to do it in the least impactful impactful, way, man, uh, impactful manner possible. So rather than shutting down the database, you, sh- you break the connectivity from the application to the database. OK. Same,
0: same concept applies to prod, too. Right? Uh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, there was a number of, uh, early in your talk, you talked about different ways like load shedding and different circuit breakers that would give degraded experience to some subset of users versus everyone. But at what point do you consider your site down Hmm. when a subset of users, maybe it's a JavaScript browser-specific bug, is the site down when yeah. that one combination of 1% of users is down, or does it have to be 5%? If your circuit breaker is tripped, is the site down or is it not down? Yeah, yeah. What, where is that line? So with the, with the circuit breaker
1: question, if the circuit breaker trips and is able to provide the information required for your application to continue to serve the customers, I would say that that, that uh, is not considered down because then your resilience measure is working and you're actually still being able to serve customers. Now, on the question about when you consider the site down, really, do you have a yeah. answer for that?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, that, that's a great question, by the way. Um, so I mentioned at the very beginning this idea of there's one goal, keep the site up. So the reason I mention that is because uh, I think what happens is uh, as people start to dive into, okay, what's it mean when the site's up or, you know, when's it down, when's it up? Those questions actually matter, but a lot of the real goal can get kind of lost in that discussion. And so what we end up doing is we say, look, the North Star is just keep the site up. What that means in the context of your specific service, that's up to the individual service teams, at least at Expedia, different companies may do it differently. The different services get to define what counts as up or down or acceptable for them. We just want them to make conscious choices about what that is, and you know to have a path to improve that over time. Thank you for that question. Does that answer it?
2: Yeah, I, I think the summary of that was just that you just think think it through.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, and it, it's very context specific, right? So, for example, like you know, in the itinerary case that I mentioned earlier, not showing the map, maybe that's okay. But in other cases, you know, the, you know, not showing something like, for example, if someone was doing an actual hotel search the map is much more important in that kind of context. They need to know where it is before they book it. Right. Please. Uh, so a couple of things. I'm assuming you have alerting that's set up, right, so someone in your operations team realizes that the circuit breaker's been tripped, right? Yeah, so um, in our test environment, the, the uh, circuit breaker piece is it's part of the dashboards that we have, so like Grafana dashboards and such, so we can see what's happening there. In production environment, we have the same sort of dashboard so that you can see the volume of traffic that's going over the circuit breaker path as opposed to the non-breaker path. Uh, so the other follow-up to that was, is it kind of dangerous to put code inside of your code for circuit ah. breakers? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you've thought of this. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, go for yeah, sure. it, yeah, this is a, a favorite topic of mine. So um, potentially, I mean, it just depends. So there's, there's danger on either side of that, right? So not having protections in place um, is dangerous, too. Um, this kind of gets off into a separate topic, which is embedding this code inside the team code. May, yeah, yeah, you can get that wrong for sure, but the challenge we're running into is more along the lines of teams are actually too busy to mess around with that stuff when they've got product work to do and a lot of times it's very uh, defensible that they're going to prioritize the product work. And so for us, we do want to move that out of the code, but it's less because we're worried that they're gonna break things, it's more because we're trying to figure out how to get this to them for free without being impactful. Yep. Thank, you. Thank you for that.
2: Please. Yeah. Um. Thank you for the demonstration of uh, resilience testing using SSM. My question is more on do you guys use this also for patch management and to, in general to avoid total SSH access to
1: uh, EC2 box? If so, what is the experience so far?
0: Wait, can, can you repeat the last part of the
1: question? Uh, the the to... overall
2: experience if you're using this for patch management and to avoid SSH access?
1: For patch management? Uh-huh. Um, no, we haven't used this for patch management. I'm not familiar myself with how exactly we do patch management, really. Do you know?
0: Yeah, I don't actually know. I, I, I don't know if we're using this for anything other than attacking, actually. Sure. Um, yeah, th- at Expedia, the different teams get to choose what they use for different practices, so it could be being used, but yeah, I, I can't speak to that.
1: One of the things that does, that does occur is that our applications, we have a system called Primer, where uh, we're able to uh, deploy applications using a, a framework that we created. Now, the primary applications are built off of certain AMIs that we update from time to time. So as far as, as uh, patches, those AMIs get updated er, on, a, on a regular basis. I don't know exactly how frequently. So when you deploy a new version of the service, it will use the latest AMI. So you will typically have your patches in there already. As, as for long-running services, I'm not sure how we deal with
2: that. OK, thank you. You're welcome. Um, what, you're using Systems Manager, but you didn't really get into any details on why you chose that um, for running commands against instances. Um, it seems like there's a number of other choices you could use, and you didn't show anything that was really showing any of the benefits mm. of that that would be unique. Is there, is there some reasons you chose that and there were some benefits specifically you're getting from it? Sure.
0: Um, so. Uh, you know the point here was more about showing how you can use it. Now we are in fact using it, and there is a reason that we like it. I'll, I'll tell you about that. But uh, just, but I agree with what you're saying is that there are other tools. I mentioned one earlier, the Gremlin tool. That's one that can be used, um, and then the scripts that are in um, the Simeon Army can also be used. Uh, something that we like about Systems Manager, I think there's a couple of things that we really like. The first one is that the uh, the agent's already part of our AMI, and so we don't have to do separate agent installs, which is nice, right? We can, we can already uh, run these commands without any extra setup. Um, the other uh, thing that's nice about this is if you look at the Netflix, um, the, the, the let's say Chaos Monkey and some of the other ones, those are embedded in a context where you're running those in production. Like you wake up, you attack, you go back to sleep, And what we want to be able to do is take those set of attacks and we essentially put them behind an API so they they can be invoked from different contexts, whether it's pipeline contexts or production contexts. And so this is a lower-level capability that just gives us the ability to attack machines, essentially. And so for us, it's been useful in that respect. Does that
2: that answer your question? Question? I don't not think so. I mean, I could see why you would use that over the things that you mentioned, but I mean, at the simplest level, all you're doing is an SSH into a machine and saying, run this command. And you don't need any any agents, or you don't need any, uh, the Simeon army or anything for any of those. And um, but that seems like that's all you're using it for.
0: Yeah, um, so some, you know, one of the thing is that we're we're generally you know, we, we do have some cases where we do that sort of SSH sort of uh, activity. Um, you know, obviously not with people doing that, but having automation doing that. Um, there are sometimes firewall issues that come up. So this is a case where, you know, instead of saying, hey, we need to get through a firewall, if we just have the instance have permission to talk to AWS, which it does have, then we sidestep that whole set of concerns. So that, that's potentially one area where this could be useful.
1: There's a capability that we haven't used yet. Um, I believe it's called uh, account impersonation, Mm -hmm. which might allow us to run attacks in a different VPC or different account than where we trigger the attack or where we um, ask for the attack to happen. That's something that we have to investigate still, but that's something that's possible with Systems Manager from what I understand. Okay. And you're right. I mean, you can easily you can easily launch the attack with uh, SSH, um, but with Systems Manager, you don't have to worry about credentials and, and as Willie mentioned, uh, uh, firewall issues, etc. Okay.
0: Okay, I, th- I think we have time
2: for.
0: Right, we have time for more. Go
2: ahead. So within the demonstration, you guys showed Jenkins. Pipeline as running that is that what you primarily use for doing these type of attacks in your environment or since you're AWS based are you utilizing the AWS tool um, the AWS pipeline for handling the scenario?
1: We have a we have a pipeline. Should I take this with you? Yeah. We have a pipeline tool that we uh, uh, built in-house called Banzai, and uh, we have our primary infrastructure set up such that. Um, the applications, oh, when, when, a, when someone wants to create an application, they can use a dashboard that allows them to create the type of application that selects a template for them, and then it will create the repository, create this pipeline in Banzai for them, include the steps to build, deploy, etc. cetera. Um, so that's the pipeline we primarily use, and that's the pipeline that we plan to continue using for, um, for the resilience tests. Uh, we use Jenkins for this demonstration because it was easy to set it up by laptop.
0: But we, we also use Jenkins on the back end for the Bonsai piece, too, though. That's, that's uh, yeah. true, right, to then, actually run the jobs. Right? And then one of our uh, esteemed guests here, uh, his team, he, he has the geography team that I mentioned earlier. Uh, his team uses Team City, So the approach isn't tied to any particular um, build automation. Okay, thanks. Just one quick one. Um, when you're testing the circuit breakers, do you do any side load? Do you bring up a BlazeMeter instance and give more load as part of your testing. Yeah, so, uh, so the, the same colleague that I just mentioned is doing exactly that. What they do is, uh, for the geography service, they, it's exactly what you just said. They uh, generate a bunch of load using uh, Gatling tool, which they already had that infrastructure set up as part of their performance testing piece, and so now they can test the breaker under realistic loads, right? So you're not tripping off of one error, for example, right? And then a second one, um, is it kind of exposure to give your developers the permissions you do in the service manager? And how would I go to my cloud team and say, hey, I want access to service manager? How would I break that conversation? Yeah, so the, the answer is yes. Um, so there, that's very much a work in progress right now, both within our team and also in partnership with some vendors. So the direction we're going is we do want the developers to be able to run these attacks against their own services. The developers have a lot of autonomy at Expedia. We don't necessarily want developers to be able to attack other people's services. So, yeah, Yeah. the mechanics of it, that's
1: still a work in progress, though. And and we did create an API that we use um, to front some of these attacks. So we uh, we haven't done it yet, but we plan on on implementing uh, authorization and authentication so we can uh, impose on the limits that Willie just mentioned.
2: Excellent. Thank
0: you for your time. Great presentation. Thank you you very much. Looks like we've uh, run out of questions, so thank you again.